You're listening to the New York Encounter podcast. The 2023 New York Encounter just wrapped up, and we'd like to thank the over 400 volunteers who came to New York to help make it possible. We also want to thank everyone who made a financial contribution to the New York Encounter this year. And if you haven't, it's not too late. You can always head to newyorkencounter.org donate and contribute today. Good morning, and on, be, on the Encounter's behalf, welcome everybody, those here in person and those following us online. I'm Kim Shankman, I'm the Dean of Benedictine College, and I will moderate this event. Before starting, I'd like to thank Benedictine College for its generous support in organizing this conversation. And I'll now introduce you to the speakers, but tell you that their full bios are available on the Encounter website. Bill Haslam is the former governor of the state of Tennessee. He was first elected in 2010 and was reelected in 2014 with the largest victory in modern Tennessee history. Since leaving office, he's returned to the private sector and continues to be engaged on many local and national issues. He is currently the chair of the Wilson Center and serves on the National Board of Directors for Teach for America and Young Life. He is also the author of Faithful Presence, The Promise and Peril of Faith in the Public Square. Daniel Lipinski represented the 3rd District of Illinois in the United States House of Representatives as a Democrat from 2005 to 2021. During his tenure, Dan served on the Transportation and Infrastructure Committee, as well as the Science, Space, and Technology Committee. He currently serves on the Advisory Council of the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation. He has recently published articles in America, The Atlantic, First Things, and Public Discourse, as well as op-eds in the Chicago Tribune and the Wall Street Journal. So let's welcome our speakers and get ready for this conversation. And I thought we'd start the conversation. I prepared a question for each of them to give them a chance to tell you just a little bit more about who they are and how they got here. So we'll start with Congressman Lipinski. One of the striking things about your background is that your father was also a member of Congress and you succeeded him um, in the same district. So I would like you to maybe tell us a little bit about what struck you about his job that made you want to follow in his footsteps if you think the job is still pretty much the same as it was when your father was doing it, and if you knew then what you know now, would you have gone down that road? <laughs> <laughs> Don't have a choice now, do I? <laughs> uh, well, thank you. It's great to be here. Thank you all for, for being here and everyone who, who's watching, and I want to thank uh, Community Liberation for this, uh, for this great event. Professor Shankman, uh, Governor Haslam, good to, good to be with you. Uh, I used to warn people that I was a politician, and before that I was a professor who sometimes taught three-hour classes that I had to speak the whole three hours. So I can go on a long time, so I'll, I'll try to rein myself in here and, and just tap me if I'm going too long. <laughs> um, yes, so my, my father, uh, was a member of Congress for 22 years, but before that he was in the Chicago City Council. And I'll always remember, my father believes that being in elected office is about helping people. That's the way he always saw it, helping people. Whether that's 
passing a law that, that helps people or helping someone individually. But that's what I, from, from watching my father, listening to him, that's what I got from him. And so I always thought that, you know, that, that's, that's a great thing to be able to, to help people out. And I'm called to service. I mean, I learned that in church and, and at home. I went to Catholic school for, for 12 years. I went to Jesuit high school. The model was men and women for, for others. And so service was always something that I felt that I w was called to in, in some way. At some point, I decided that um, uh, I was going to serve as a, I wanted to be a teacher, be, be a professor. After two engineering degrees, I went and earned a PhD in political science and was a teaching political science. And I thought that's the way that I was going to serve. Uh, but the, I still felt that pull, because I always loved government politics. That's why I went for the PhD in political science. And when my father retired, uh, I knew I had an opportunity then to run for that seat in, in Congress. And whatever, whatever it was, um, uh, you know, say I, I was through my discernment, my prayers, uh, my wife, who we had just married eight, nine months before that, she thought she was marrying a college professor. And I go to my wife and say, yeah, what do you think about me running for Congress? Um, and, and she was very much, you know, if, you, if that's what you want to do. And so I, I felt called. And I, I was, I'll say, moved by the Holy Spirit to, to enter, enter politics. And I'm certainly happy that, uh, that I did. I served for 16 years in the House um, until I was defeated in the Democratic primary in, in 2020 uh, because I feel it was because I, I stood up for, for the truth. And so I, I had no, no shame whatsoever in losing that because I felt that I stood up for what I believe is true. I stood up for my, my Catholic faith and what, what that calls me to be supportive of. Uh, and so I'm very happy that I, I was called to, to service and now I feel a, a, a continued call to serve in, in other ways after, since, I've, uh, since I've left office. Thanks. And Governor Haslam, before holding office, you were a very successful businessman. And so I'm interested in maybe you want to tell people um, a little bit about how your experience of leading a company differs from being a governor of a state. What was the most rewarding thing about that difference? What was the most challenging thing about that difference? And if your children were looking to you, would you advise them public service <laughs> or not? So what you miss about business and politics is the definitiveness of it. You know, you have, uh, you have sales and you have expenses and you have margins and that tells you your profits and the numbers are what they are. In politics, it's so much more of a perception game. I, I, I probably served with a hundred different other people as governors during the eight years I was in office, the way term rotations work. And if I asked the general public, who are the, who are the really good governors, you would get some names of the people who happen to be the most prominent, but they weren't the best. Uh, like I said, there's a, it's, it's a perception-driven uh, driven, uh, occupation, if you will. The flip side of that, what, what do you like? What's, what's better about being in politics is this. It's, 
it's the leverage to make a difference. So when I was in office, we decided we were gonna try to be the first state to offer two years free of community college or technical school to everybody in the state and to, to, put, to set the program up so we could promise the, the mother of a newborn baby when that baby gets to be you know, the, the right age, he or she can, can have free college. You can't do that in private business. You don't have that scope and leverage um, to be able to make those kind of changes. And so that, that, that's what I love about it. What I, my kids, the kids of politicians either, my experience say they're drawn to it or they run from it. <laughs> and uh, my children are all really quick to say, that's your world. Uh, we're glad you're doing it. We're glad you've been called to do that. But, but having said that, would I advise them? I would. Um, it's, again, I'll come back to that word. It is hard to compare the, the difference you can make, the leverage you have in public service to, to, to very few other things in terms of if we're all wired to want to make a difference, I, the ability to make a difference in public office is really great. Oh, great, thank you. Well, one of the things that's, that unites both of you is you're both very well known as politicians whose political positions are really influenced by your faith, as you alluded to directly, uh, Congressman Lipinski. And um, so one of the things that, that I was thinking about was the fact that a lot of times when you think about bringing faith into politics, you think about certain issues, life, for example, and those kinds of issues. But I'm wondering if you could kind of walk us through your decision-making pro process. How does your faith influence you on something really far away from a doctrinal issue? So the example that, that I was using is um, the bipartisan infrastructure bill. Okay, how would you, you use your faith to help you decide whether or not to, to do that? Do you feel like you're called as, as to be a person who represents the interests of your constituents, so you would evaluate the bill in how it directly affects your constituents? Or do you think the job of a, a leader, you know, the, that God has called you to do what's in the long-term best interest of the entire country, so you would want to say, even if this doesn't help my constituents, or even maybe if it hurts them, I would support it anyway if I thought it was in the long-term good. Or there's probably other ways to do it. So if, if uh, let's start with you and then go back to you and we'll go around. Sure. One of the points I make all the time is if you are being uh, a faithful follower um, of what you really believe, there are going to, going to be times when you make decisions that make people on the right mad at you and decisions that make people on the left mad at you, sometimes in the same day. <laughs> Uh, I honestly think if you're, in my case, if, if you're reading the Gospels and the New Testament the, the way I think you did, there, there's going to be things that are going to make both sides mad at you. So you have to kind of accept that. But I think your question's about what about those non-doctrinal issues, the things that there's no clear scriptural exactly. admonition there at all. Well, how do you react? Well, the reason I ran to begin with was that you, there's a passage in Jeremiah 29, the Israelites are being held captive in Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar's horrible king. Uh, they're being, I always say, if, if I'm there, I hope you write me and say, I'm coming to get you as quick as I can. But Jeremiah basically writes him and says, get used to it. You're going to be there a while. And he says, um, he says, plant gardens and build houses and have your children marry. Uh, and then he says, seek the welfare of the place where I have called you, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. And so I think that's the, to me, that was kind of what I said, like, I'm here to seek the welfare of the place where I've been called. And so, again, there's times when, you know, you know the Bible tells us we're supposed to be concerned about the poor. 
What's that look like in terms of economic systems op open for debate, right? But there's times when I thought, okay, what's the best way I can seek the welfare of this place where I've been called? Okay, Congressman Lipinski. Well, I think one of the, the big issues that we face today, and we're gonna talk more about this later, is the divide in, in our country. And unfortunately, you know, one, one of the many uh, ways this divide hurts us is, is we don't really, uh, we, uh, politicians, uh, mostly, you know, it, it's a very different, let me take a step back, it's a very different position to be a mayor or a governor uh, than it is to be a, a, a representative. Uh, and for, for good and, in, and for, for bad in it, you, you need to make, it comes down to you as the decision maker, in, in, as people see it, at, at least. Even if everything isn't really what you do, um, they'll look to you because you're, you're the executive. When you're a representative, it's so much easier, unfortunately, for representatives to sort of pass, pass the buck. Uh, and I don't, so I'm, I'm an engineer, and I always go back, I'm an engineer, and, and I look at what are the, what are the facts, what are the statistics, work through that, and reason through the, these decisions. And a lot of times right now in, in politics, people vote for an idea. Uh, and I always say, in the legislature, you need to vote for a bill. And what, you really need to see what, what's in the bill. And then the decision about, do you represent your constituents, you represent the country, there's really a balance there. I mean, first and foremost, uh, we are elected by our, our constituents. We are there to, to represent them. And so the constituents have to come first, but certainly you don't do anything that's going to be detrimental to, to the country. Uh, just to help your your constituents, but these are things that I think where reason needs to to come in. Reason, debate, deliberation. A lot of things are lacking right now in uh, in Congress. Other legislatures really needs to be brought back in more, so we can come to some you know, compromises uh, in in order to help the, the common good. Great, thank you. Thank you for listening to the New York Encounter podcast. The New York Encounter is a three-day cultural event that takes place every President's Day weekend in Manhattan. Every year, we bring together speakers, put on exhibits, and host musical shows, offering opportunities for education, dialogue, and friendship. Following St. Paul's suggestion to test everything and retain what is good, the Encounter aims to discover, affirm, and offer to everyone truly human expressions of the desire for truth, beauty, and justice. To learn more about the New York Encounter, visit newyorkencounter.org. One of the things that I think would be interesting for people to hear would be an example of a time you might have said, okay, I'm going to follow my conscience on this one, and then it had a, it had a good impact. You know, your party was maybe pushing you one way, or your constituents, but you said, well, my conscience my, you know, tells me that I have to do something different. Do you, could you tell us how, how that might have worked out for the good? Well, it, it, it's tougher, as, as I said, as a representative, it's hard to have an impact, you know, specifically with, with the one vote, but two things come to mind, I'll go through them quickly. One was 
legislation, when the Affordable Care Act first passed the House of Representatives in 2009, there are a group of us pro-life Democrats who held out our votes and said, we will not vote for this unless you put in language that says there will be no uh, funding for abortion or insurance that covers abortion uh, in this new insurance uh, program. And uh, it, was a, it was a battle to, to the end, but finally the uh, House leadership, Speaker Pelosi, had to give in and had to allow us a, a vote, and we were able to get that into the bill. And I, I was very, you know, very happy that we were able to succeed there. Unfortunately, when the bill came back, we weren't able to do that. So I, I hate telling that story because in the end it didn't work out. But at that one moment, I'll always remember that moment where I said, this is what I came here to make a difference. I felt like I really made a difference at that point. There's one other thing that, that, that comes to mind that I had a, uh, a constituent who was going to be deported. And it was through no, no fault of her own. I won't, won't go through the whole story. But this was... Uh, I went and met with her at the detention facility, and then I found out a few days later she was about to be deported. The only way to stop it was to get the chair and the ranking member, the top Republican, top Democrat on this subcommittee, to agree that to stop this deportation. The chair of that committee was a very conservative Republican, Steve King from, from Iowa, and I had a good relationship with Steve King. He was someone that a lot of Democrats did not talk to at all. Um, I was able to get him. He was known as a staunch, uh, and uh, Steve King said some things that um, uh, were, were pretty awful uh, later on. Um, but You're being kind. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but... I was able, and I thought, this is part of my job, is to have these relationships that, you know, with people across the aisle. And we were able to, this woman was not deported because I was able to talk to him and got him to actually look at her case. And he didn't knee-jerk say, oh, this is an illegal immigrant, we need to deport her. He actually looked at her case because he knew who I was and he knew and he trusted me. Now, people never in campaigns, people never wanted me to talk about that because they said, we don't want people to know that you were friendly with Steve King. Uh, <laughs> but this woman now is living in the United States. She's, she's married now, she's a citizen. And I was very happy that I was able to do that. And it was because I chose to have a relationship with someone who most other people in my party would have just said, oh, you know, he's, he's worthless, I'm just, I'm just staying away from him. And so I, I, I thought about that also. Great. Yeah, unfortunately, some of the stories, I think, where you do that, where you go against kind of what your, where your party tells you you should be, they don't always end up well, like, uh, like Congressman said. It's, uh, it, I, my case actually is on the, the, the Affordable Care Act it actually played out a different way. Remember, it came up before the Supreme Court as being legal, whether it was legal to have the, 
the, the mandate that you buy insurance. And then the Supreme Court came back and surprised everybody saying, well, the mandate's legal, but what's not is forcing states to cover this additional population because the states have to pay part of the cost. And so then it came back to every individual state to decide that. Our state's a very conservative. President Obama at the time was not very popular. Obamacare was not popular at all. Uh, and over a period of time, though, I thought there, there are some really good things that could really help our citizens if we could change some things in there. And so I worked really hard to get a bill, get a, a waiver passed with HHS in Washington that would allow us to do some things that we needed to. Was so excited to finally get there and present what I thought was actually a conservative answer uh, to this. Uh, and then we got smeared in the legislature. So uh, it, it, it lost in the very, very first committee, which is a bad way to lose. But um, I guess quick, quick death, I guess is good. But, um, but it, again, I think the point is that there are times when you're gonna end up doing things, again, did it, politically did it make sense for Dan to do something with Steve King? No, but there is a woman who didn't get deported because of that. And I think there's just always going to be decisions along the way that if you're being faithful are gonna play out that way. Great, great. Thank you for those answers, they're very interesting. Okay, so I know that both of you are very interested in this issue of tribalism and political division and divisiveness. And so I was wondering, you know, if, if you could share a little bit sort of, of your overall thoughts and maybe some ideas of solutions about how we got here, um, what, what kinds of ways could we look to to try and bridge these divides, and what kinds of um, messages of hope for the future to, could you yeah, bring? I, I'll go first because that's why I agreed to come <laughs> to this, is to answer that question. question yeah. um, Jesus always starts with us. If you think about it, when the woman's caught in adultery, uh, he starts with the religious people that, that are there. You know, when he goes to the temple, he's upset with the religious people when he flips the tables over. And mo most pointedly, he says, you know, if the meat's gone bad, it's not the meat's fault, it's the salt's fault. We're the salt. And if it's dark, it's the light's fault. And I think when we look at the tribalism and the polarization, we have to start with ourselves. Um, one of my biggest disappointments being in office uh, was that Christians were no different in the political arena than everyone else. As a matter of fact, just as likely to, to say things uh, on the internet that, that they'd never say in person, just as likely to spread unfounded rumors or stories, and I can keep going. Um, and I, I, I really think that if you, if you, if you, somebody said, you have to boil down the instruction out of the Old Testament and the New Testament uh, to how we're supposed to act. It's we're supposed to be different, but we're not. And so, um, unfortunately, like I said, um, we're not, we're not different too often. Those who call themselves Christians are, are, leading the, are leading the pack. And so I'd say, let's start with ourselves. And we, we have... We have a certain advantage when it comes to this. We, we have a God who calls us to humility. Uh, that's one of the clearest things that, you know, uh, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. James says it, Peter says it, it's, humility's all through there. And we can start with humility because we believe what it says about us, that, you know, all we like sheep have gone astray, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We, we can start with that because 
we know that we're broken people. We just, we know that when we, that's part of our starting point. And so that needs to be our starting point in politics as well, uh, is this idea of humility. And then the second thing, and the second reason I decided to come speak at this was what you're talking about. Our urge should be for truth. It's not to win the argument. It's not to, um, you know, score a great hit on social media, but our urge is to get to the right answer. That that's, that's our assignment, is not to win, but to get to the right answer. And I think if we would start modeling that humility and that desire for the right answer, then we might uh, be salt that was worth more than being thrown out. <laughs> Congressman Lipinski. I, I really have to be careful here now. I, I, with everything the governor said, uh, I completely agree with. I've spent a lot of time, I have to be careful because I spent a lot of time on this. I'm writing a book on this right now, The Catholic Answer to Our Divided Nation. Um, please don't ask me about it in a few months because it won't be done for a while. Um, <laughs> but no, it, we have, it's not tribal. We don't have tribalism in this country. We have sectarianism. It fits all of the definitions of sectarianism. It's a sectarian political and political slash social divide. We have two sects in this country a, you know, Democrats, Republicans, you know, left, right. There's a set of beliefs from everything from, you know, tax policy to the nature of the human person. And we are constantly bombarded by this idea that we need to choose one of these two sets of beliefs. And if we step out of line, as I stepped out of line, you're a heretic and you get, you get punished. And what holds these two groups together more than anything else is hatred of the other side. It's not love of the people in their group, it's hating the other side. And it is destroying our, our country. And as I, I know that you know, a, a lot of people who, a lot of faithful Catholics look at the left and, and see a denial of, of, of God and Christianity specifically and really want to lash out and say, well, that means we got to join the sectarian right and fight with the same, use the same tactics that the left is using. And that's what we, we, we see going, going on. I think that's what the governor is talking about here is then as Christians we're acting we're not acting differently. So we are called, we are called to show people that neither the left or the right is correct. There is a better way. And there's a real need for us to get to this truth and to communicate this truth. And the other, the other thing that, that I find sometimes um, is that we forget that we are called to evangelize the culture, and not just to complain about the culture, not to, just to tell people that they're wrong. It's to evangelize. It's to spread the good word. And the, it's not the job of the government. We shouldn't be saying, well, we need to get control of the government so that we can force this. That's not what we as Christians have been taught from the beginning, from Jesus Christ. 
And it's sometimes we will be seen as losers in the world. Again, no one wants to lose in, in politics. I didn't want to lose, but I'm hopeful that my witness served a purpose. St. Thomas More, when he was executed because he refused to acknowledge the, the king as the head of the church in, in England, this is a man, St. Thomas More, Thomas More was the, had the highest position in government besides the king. He gave up all that power and then he gave up his life. And he could be seen as the biggest loser that there is. But his witness today is probably more important than it was when he gave his life then. And we also have to accept that we are sometimes called to lose in the eyes of the world, but to be witnesses. And we are all a part of this. And that's what I love about this, about this event this weekend. I think that's what we are all, we all understand that, that, that call and we need to get out there. And it's, it's so easy to fall into the, a, a trap though. It, it just start fighting the other side instead of trying to really evangelize and, and change people, change, change the culture. You are listening to the New York Encounter podcast. The Encounter is entirely volunteer-run and donation-funded, and as you probably realize, it takes a lot of money every year to put it on. What that means is that if you want The Encounter to continue its work, we need your help. Head on over to newyorkencounter.org donate and consider making a monthly donation to sustain The Encounter in its work. Thank you for your support. So I just want to follow up just a little bit because I think everyone understands that this is, this is really crucial. Is this something that you see happening just from kind of individual witness organically growing through friendship groups or events like this where people of, you know, from all different perspectives of good faith get together and exchange ideas? Or is there some kind of um, more policy or, or public-oriented approach to kind of try to break through the noise of social media and the, the, the things that keep reinforcing our divisions. And yeah. either one of you can jump in on that one. Yeah. I know, that's a really hard one. I'm going to turn it over to the government. There are no easy answers. That, that's the problem. It, it's, all of what you talk about is important. And so... There are some government policies that I want to change. Uh, no, no question about that. That, will be, that would be helpful. But it's all, there's no simple answers. And I think that's one of the problems that we, we're running into right now is, is there's this idea out there that there are simple answers. Oh, there's a simple answer that this problem for that problem. If only we do exactly what I, what I say, there aren't most of these uh, answers are, are, are not simple. They're, they're not easy. And we also have to have a view and an understanding that things can't get, aren't going to be done tomorrow. And having a longer view is something that I think is, uh, is really something that we, we have lost. We as a culture have, have lost. And we have to understand that, you know, we have been promised. You know, we, we know what the end of the story 
is. How we get there, only God knows. We have to play our, our role. Um, but I think it, it's really important in, one last thing, in a world where people are becoming, you know, we're losing our, our institutions. People don't trust institutions. They're not being, you know, not joining institutions. Uh, we need to make sure that we are doing that and we are supporting each other. That's something that I, you know, through the struggles I went through in my last two elections, the one I won and the one I lost, I really found people and I found a group of people uh, who were really helpful to me, not just in my political life, but in my spiritual life. And that is so critically important. It's something I don't do enough of. And I, I, I understand it. I need to do more. And that's why, again, communion liberation, I, I'm just, you know, these, this is what we are, we are called to do, especially as, as, as Catholics really believe in, in community and in the importance of, of community. Great answer. I think that the, the important thing to start with is remembering who's not going to do that. Okay. okay. That is not the media's job. Their, their business model is based on outrage. Mm -hmm. And the matter I can get you, the more you're going to watch, you know, my cable news on loop and you're going to, you know, click on that article, et cetera. So they're not going to. The political parties, that's not their job either. Their job is to elect people. And most folks who are in office, their job is to keep getting elected. So it's not going to come from there. So I do think it's going to come from people like us and um, of folks that say, I think there's a different way to do this, and I really do have a desire for something different than this. You would be surprised, I think Dan will echo this, how few voices it takes to change a politician's mind, good, good and bad. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I would be shocked how often we'd be working on something and you know, one of our legislators say, yes, I'm with you on, I'm with you on that. And they'd get five emails against it. And they'd say, I'm sorry, I can't be with you anymore. <laughs> and my point is, I think when people take the frustration and exhaustion that we feel with this and start to talk about that and start to have other like-minded people talk about that, it gives courage to other people who are thinking that but not saying anything. So I guess my answer to your question is, I think it'll be more of a grassroots things, but Thing, but it helps to have groups like this one where people say, you know, I was with, I don't know, 300 other people this weekend, and there's a real latent desire to have a more aspirational, hope-based politics than just this outrage uh, vent against the other side world that we live in. Yeah, yeah. And I'm really interested, uh, just to follow up just real briefly, uh, Congressman Lipinski mentioned you know, solutions don't come tomorrow, it's a longer term. But as you just pointed out, all the incentives on the, the your opponent, when you stand up and say that, your opponent is gonna say, no, I have the plan that if we put it in a place, gonna solve this problem tomorrow, because it's really simple. And I don't know if that's just kind of baked in the cake of democracy, that that's always gonna be a problem, or is there some element of constituent education that, that um, leaders can do to sort of help people understand that, that you know, there. I think really strong leaders have a um, real, you know, desire to tell the truth. And by that, I don't mean just tell the truth about their 
personal life, et cetera, but to tell the truth about that's fine. This, you know, the decision you're talking about, here's the consequences to that. Mm -hmm. And um, like I said, part of democracy, unfortunately, is it doesn't count the cost of tomorrow. Okay, if we do that, here's the, the cost to um, our environment. Or if we do this, here's the cost to our long-term debt. The consequences aren't ever part of the conversation. I, I'm kind of hoping there's room now in the conversation for people to go, that works really well for now, but we need to think longer than now. <laughs> I, I could, couldn't agree more with uh, what the governor said there. In, in, it's going to take leadership, and, and that's, that is so important. And I keep hoping for a, a president that we see as a leader. Uh, who is going to going to do these things? And um, I, I just, unfortunately, it's it's not happening. But someone has to step forward and really show. A number of people have to step forward and, and show it a different way, and, and to show you know, that you know these solutions aren't easy. Yeah, it is. That was the hardest thing in. Uh, in a campaign is going against someone who said, oh, I have the answer, and it's an easy answer, it's a simple answer, and he just won't do it. When I try to explain, no, it's, it, the problem is tougher than that. The, the issue for me as a politician, which was, you know, hurt me as a politician, is I felt like I couldn't just tell people, oh yeah, I'm gonna get that done, and then if I did, I felt like I had to do it, or at least, you know, really believe it can happen and it is possible to do. And, and again, it's getting away from the, getting away from, from the truth and just whatever's gonna sell. One other thing, a role that people like those in the room can play is we're also people who believe in grace, okay? And one of the things I learned in politics is this is way harder than it looks. Um, I asked a quick story when I was, Every year, the President of the United States, whoever it is, has all the governors and spouses to dinner. The President's cabinet's there, and it's a black tie dinner. It's, you know, when the United States of America wants to put on, put on the full dog at the White House, it's a pretty cool deal, you know, the Marine Band's playing. But I was sitting one, one night, it was Obama's last year, sitting one night next to a guy who had been, uh, you know, he was a hardcore, uh, Democrat all his life, had been with, you know, President Obama all along the way. And I said, what do you know now that you wish you'd known when you came here? And he said, I wish I'd known how hard all this is. He said, I wouldn't have been nearly as hard on George W. Bush. He said, don't get me wrong, I still disagree with him. I disagreed with his approach on Iraq and, and kind of went through the list. He said, but I have a lot more sense for how hard these issues are. And I think Dan would say that, I'd say that, you know, we look at what we've just been through with COVID and everybody's saying, well, they got it wrong on this, they got it wrong. They're like, hey guys, we were, we, everybody, we were trying to figure this out as it went, whether you were a school principal or you were in Washington, there was just a lot. And so I think if we started modeling, showing folks a little grace, um, maybe that might catch on. <laughs> 
Maybe. You, you know, that's, <laughs> that's something I wanted to kind of take a, just a slight tangent from what the way we've been talking about this, because I'm thinking that the polarization issues also weigh really heavily on the people in office. Like your uh, story about uh, Representative King, you know, that he, okay, th there are reasons, but he, it must have been very hard for him to kind of know that he's a pariah, that people just don't even want to talk to him, don't want to have anything to do with him. And th that's maybe an extreme example, but there is, you, you know, as the polarization goes further and further, instead of having these kind of relationships where you can just talk one-on-one, -on -one, it just must, that must be an extra burden of political leadership is you get tagged as a certain kind of person a certain, and that, then that influences um, who will talk to you or things like that. So do you have any ideas about how political leadership can be made more attractive at a human level so that people don't feel like if I take a step into this field, I'm going to be permanently, you know, have a big target on my back for half the population? Well, I wish I had that, that answer, too. Um, I, I mean, what, so much of it right now, getting back to what, what I was talking about be, before in, in this sectarian divide is the fear of stepping out of line with your group. And that, that's, that weighs so heavily. I, I've always been someone who, I, I've always believed that the, the influence that people are more influenced than they, by others around them than they ever admit that, that they are. Really? Uh, and I, I think that's the good part of that is we have the opportunity to influence people if we speak out. And politicians are, you're talking about, you know, an idea and then someone says, oh, no, I got five emails yesterday. And it's amazing how risk averse politicians are. They're really, really risk averse. <laughs> and things spook politicians. You wouldn't believe it because as a politician, you've got to, you need to stand up there and be, act like you're confident in, in everything. And... But then in, in reality, you're really scared. You're always running, you're always running scared. Um, and part of the problem, again, I think talking about grace, that, that is we don't show any. In both sides now do not show any, any grace. And that's what makes these two sects so different from Christianity in that we understand that we fall short all the time. Uh, and you can't be fearful just stepping out of, you know, falling out of line once. Uh, but again, it's, it's up to all of, all of us. Uh, this, uh, you know, political leaders are, are important. We have to su support good ones and support the ones who are doing the things that, who are acting in ways that we are, you know, supportive of, not just, you know, spouse the, the, the right policies, but acting as humans in the, it's so it's hard in politics, but I always, you know, politicians who, the people who I really liked, who I got along well with, who were, who were friends of mine, were the ones that would let you in a little bit and show their humanity 
in a real sense of them. Because a lot, a lot of politicians never do. The politicians I knew, served with for years, I never knew who they really were. I never, I was like, ah. And that makes a difference. But that's all part of what's going on, unfortunately, in, in our culture, in vulnerability. And vulnerability is the toughest thing for a politician. But to me, vulnerability shows, gives me more trust than, than anything else. And I think that goes for all human relations. Thanks. Do you have anything to add yeah, to that? Not really. I mean, I, I, think, uh, I think Dan said that well. And I, again, I think there's certain things that we as people of faith can bring to that discussion that other people can't. Mm -hmm. I mean, we just have a, we, we believe in both justice and mercy. You know, we believe in love and truth. And I think we're equipped to have these conversations, or we should be, in ways that other people aren't. Yeah, yeah. seek justice, love mercy, and walk humbly before the Lord. Right, and, and to do all those. <laughs> if we could do a, those. You don't get to pick two of the three. We're supposed <laughs> to do all three. <laughs> there you go. Um, so I, I think there's a number of young people here in the room. So do you have advice for them if they're thinking about entering public service or... You know, I don't, I don't want to presume to tell other people what the call on their life is, but I would say this, if you're thinking about it, and you really do, like I said, you, part of the way, again, I think we're all wired to want to make a difference. It is hard to compare the difference you can make in public life to anything else. Again, it's just the, the multiplier effect is greater. And um, I don't know if I'll ever have a public service role again, uh, but... I'll be a little sad if I don't because of just the chance to, to, to uh, the chance for the, the, that you have to, to do that in office. So I would tell them to consider it. But even if you don't, even if you think I'm not, I'm not that person, then find other people, uh, the right people to help run. People who are committed to finding the right answer instead of just their answer. People who have a sense of humility and their call to do it. So find other folks. I, and then even then, if, if you think, well, I'm not, that's not me either, then stay engaged. Uh, the thing that scares me is uh, I think more and more people are saying, I'm just frustrated and exhausted and a pox on both of their houses, I'm out of here. And what you're finding in the country today is independents are actually growing. And if you're for kind of balanced debate, you might think, well, that's good. But actually what it's doing, it's leaving the, the edges of the party to be in control of the the whole primary process where people put up yard signs and put bumper stickers on their car and call people to vote and knock on doors. It's leaving the folks on the furthest edges of each party, the people who are still engaged. And so it hasn't actually played out. As we've grown in independence, like I said, conceptually, you might think, well, that, that should foster good debate, but it hasn't played out that way because of the way the, prim the reality of the primary system. So don't disengage is, would be the message. Would be your message in Yeah, I, I agree with, with everything that, that you said. It, it's, a, it's the issue of a lot of people disengage. I saw this happening, and I, it was very clear to me. I, I, I remember two people who came up to me. This was probably, this wasn't even when things got even worse in the last five, six years. It was probably a few years before that, and people come up to me and say, you know, I used to come to your town hall meetings because I'd have town hall meetings. Everyone's invited, ask me questions. I used to come to your town hall meetings, but I stopped coming because last time I went, I thought there was a fight was going to break out. And someone else said, yeah, I used to come to your town hall meetings, but I stopped because 
I want to ask a question last time, but then I was afraid someone was going to yell at me if, if I asked a, asked a question. And so people have, good people have, have dropped out and left it to the people who, those who are more radical, who then control both parties. And that is a big problem. But if you're a young person, yeah, I, you know, I, I sit here talking about how, how terrible things are, but we can only make a difference if we are involved. And yes, not, not everyone's called to be directly involved in government and in, in politics, but we're all at least called to be engaged to, to, to some extent. And what we need to do is support those, be those people and support those people in politics, in government, who are who are showing the right way, showing the, the correct way, and that's the thing to do. And if you want to do it, you know, you know, be ready to, it's, it's, a tough, it's a tough, tough life, but is it incredibly rewarding? And, you know, you, you may lose, but you're doing the, the right thing. You know from your faith that, you know, it, it, it doesn't matter. It, it doesn't matter win or lose. You want to win, but just do the right thing in what you're called to do. You are listening to the New York Encounter podcast. The Encounter is entirely volunteer-run and donation-funded. And as you probably realize, it takes a lot of money every year to put it on. What that means is that if you want the Encounter to continue its work, we need your help. Head on over to newyorkencounter.org slash donate and consider making a monthly donation to sustain the encounter in its work. Thank you for your support. Okay, well, it's, we've got just a few more minutes, and so I thought our, I would ask to wrap this up with a final question, which is, who is your political hero and why? Um, Congressman, do you want to start? Well, I'm going to cheat and do two. I, I always said, I'd always say Ronald Reagan. Um, Ronald Reagan, I, look, I'm a, I'm a, went to high, I went to high school during Reagan's first term, college during the second term. I loved Ronald Reagan. Um, a lot of things that, that he stood for in, in America, sort of coming together and believing more in itself. But the thing that, really stood out and still stands out to me today is Ronald Reagan had his principles, but he was always willing, he understood he needed to compromise and he would compromise to do something better for the country, to advance good policies. He was always willing to compromise. Ronald Reagan would not, he would have been kicked out of the Republican Party a few years back for many of the th things that, that he did. And I always very much, you know, admired that. And I think that is the way to go. But it, my, my hero is really my father, uh, who again, it's, he got into it, into politics to help people. He'll tell you he wanted to be somebody. And to, be, to him, to be somebody was to be able to help people. And he always looked to, to do that. And uh, that really meant more to me than, than anything and sort of driven me more than anything else in, in, 
in my call to, to service, in, especially in, the, in, in politics. Well, if he gets to cheat, I get to cheat too. Okay. I'll take two. <laughs> All right. Um, if you must. Uh, <laughs> I'll start. Uh, Howard Baker was a United States Senator from Tennessee, became Majority Leader, and was Reagan's Chief of Staff, and then uh, Bush 41's Ambassador to Japan. But Baker had a saying that said, always remember the other fella might be right which is, that's heresy in politics today. I mean, if you say that today, you know, whoever's running against you in the primary will blast you, okay? But, but it's true, and it's how I think we, again, as people of faith, should approach the, the conversation. Um, and he, this is funny now, the, the things that become a big deal and a big argument, in hindsight, people go, really, that was a thing? Um, in 1978, the United President Carter proposed giving the Panama Canal to Panama, uh, which now you think, we're all scratching our head going, okay, I can't remember, did that happen or not? Who, who owns the Panama <laughs> Canal? Well, we, we did, uh, and Baker voted for it uh, as a Republican, and people went crazy, like, you know. Uh, we, we have time. Yeah. Well, I'll finish. Um, people went crazy that, um, that he had done that. Uh, and it literally cost, you know, a lot of people think it cost him the chance to, uh, to be president, which he'd always wanted to. He ran in the AD primary, and Reagan beat him, but he, like I said, he was pretty much, once he did that, it really scarred him. So uh, I think, the, again, folks, that, to me, that was, and that's, that was the first person I ever worked for in politics, and I was working for him during that time, and this is pre-email and pre-texting and anything else, and so you got, you got, the way you told your, your representative or your senator how you felt, you, you wrote them a letter. And that was my job, was opening mail, and it was like, you know, 20,000 to one against the Panama Canal. And so, like I said, I was an, I was an intern. We weren't like, I didn't hang around with the senator all that much, but one time I rode with him on the little train from the Senate office building to the, to the Capitol, and I said, Senator, I don't understand. Why are you doing this? And he said, that every now and then you just have to figure out the right thing to do and do it. And that kind of courageous uh, decision, I think, was that. So I said I was going to take two, but we're out of time, so I'll, I'll, I'll leave it okay. one. Thanks so much to both our speakers. I want to tell you that at 11.30, Governor Haslam will be available for a book signing of Faithful Presence, The Promise and Peril of Faith in the Public Square at the Human Adventure um, book table right outside the auditorium. And I bet if you ask him, he'll tell you who his other person was. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm going to ask him. One important <laughs> announcement. You're part of the New York Encounter, a place that welcomes everybody. And we'd like to ask you to help us keep it alive. We invite you to give generously at our donation table outside the auditorium or in just a couple of clicks at the newyorkencounter.org slash donate. Your donation is tax deductible. And once again, I'd like to thank our sponsor, Benedictine College. Thank you for listening to the New York Encounter podcast. We hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please consider posting a review on whatever platform you listen on. 
Those reviews really help the podcast reach more listeners. If you share the podcast on social media, please tag The New York Encounter. On Twitter, we're at NY Encounter.